thank you guys for joining another Down the Hatch podcast. This is another installment in our Swallowing Neurophysiology series, and I'm getting ready to crack up because one of our guests can't stop smiling, and he is Evangelos Christou. I know Evangelos because when I started at UF, my very first day when we had that breathing retreat, um, I was asking all kinds of hard-hitting questions of the people uh, that were presenting, and uh, Evangelos came over to me and said, hey, do you know so-and-so and so-and-so from Hopkins who study similar work as he does, Amy Bastian and Pablo Selnick? And I said, of course I do. And of course, we've been lifelong friends ever since. So much so that we actually published together. There's evidence that I know this person. And he was on Alicia Vos's dissertation committee. So... Dr. Christou, I'm going to call you Evangelist from now on. Um, go ahead and introduce yourself. Let everybody know what you do and what your background is and any other fun details you think we should know about you going forward. My name is Evangelos Christou and I'm currently a professor at the Department of Applied Physiology and Kinesiology at the University of Florida. I came here in 2010 and before that I was at Texas A&M and before that I was at University of Colorado, uh, Boulder. Um, my area of expertise uh, it's basically motor learning and motor control and a little bit of neurophysiology here and there. Um, I've known Alicia and Ianessa for about, I don't know, six, seven, eight years now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> More like two, three, four, five. But I mean, hey, extrapolate how you feel. I, I love being with... Uh, these two, because we always laugh together, and um, we, I think we are learning and having fun at the same time. So I'm really happy to be here and uh, assist in any way I can. You're not the first guest from the APK department, so no pressure. We had Leo Ferreira on maybe two years ago, talking nice. about muscle fatigue. That's great. And Leo is from Brazil, so why don't you tell everybody where you're from? Because they're mm. wondering, they're trying to place the accent as we speak. Well, I'm originally from Cyprus. I'm Greek, um, and I've been in the U.S. since 1989. Uh, but I came straight out of, um, actually, the Army. After high school, I went to the Army, and I came right after that, and I've been here since then. Wow. So you beat me by one year. I got here in 1990. I have my 30-year U.S. anniversary immigration date as of August 1990. Nice. Yeah. All right. Do you so, still have dual citizenship? I do. I'm on a green card. <laughs> I remember the green card days. Those were rough. <laughs> so today we're going to be talking about motor learning. And in particular, we want to make sure that people understand what it is. And we want, to under want them to understand that motor learning is important to understand because it impacts rehabilitation. A lot of times the, the folks in the motor learning world don't think about swallowing. Um, to my knowledge, I'm the first person to do any research in swallowing, directly testing principles of motor learning. And both of my, actually, I think all three of my NIH grants were on the topic related to motor learning. And so um, what I learned about that area, that specialty, is that it belongs predominantly to people who study the arms, the legs, and the eyes, meaning people who are doing saccades, so like basically looking at stimuli uh, and people who do arm reaching tasks and people who do walking um, tend to be the ones that 
dominate research in this area. And especially those that do arms and legs tend to have a connection to the clinical world with OTs and PTs in terms of how their research gets interpreted. This is very exciting to me because motor learning has been studied. It's a theory, but it's been studied forever. It just hadn't really, really been tied to feeding and swallowing very well. I know that David Ostry has done some stuff in Montreal related to jaw movement, but the actual physiology of a swallow had not really been studied. So any opportunity I had to talk to somebody who was in that world, I was very excited to talk to them. So fast forward to what we want to talk about today, which is how do we define motor learning? Evangelos, you actually teach a class about this and Alicia took this class with you. So I'm going to let you guys do this in the didactic form. Maybe you can start with a general description, Evangelos, and Alicia, you can talk about how it applies to swallowing in your opinion. I just got my heart rate went up because I just, I thought I was going to be quizzed. (laughs) 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 I just had a moment of like, oh shit. She's only been graduated for one year, so she still has those panic moments with Mm me. (laughs) 100%. So I guess the classic definition comes from uh, Schmidt and Lee um, since 1980s. Um, And it's basically a set of processes. It's defined as a set of processes associated with practice or experience leading to relatively permanent changes uh, in your ability to do movements. Um, So if if you break down that definition, it's basically the effects of practice on changing your brain forever to be able to produce something new, like biking. Uh, Once you figure out how to bike, you almost never forget. So something permanently has changed in your brain. Uh, And that's that's pretty much the definition of model learning. That's probably the best definition I've heard after all these years. This idea, I mean, it so maps on nicely to what people say about neuroplasticity. It's just like you break off a subsection of neuroplasticity and say, but for movement, what does it mean? So I think that's really cool. Yeah, I like, um, you know, the contrast that with motor performance, where a task is executed or a skill is executed that results in more of a temporary non-permanent change. I think some of these these terms get um, confusing, especially in the clinical world when we talk about how do we really delineate between motor learning versus um, motor performance or skill acquisition, which I've you know read a lot in the literature that skill acquisition and motor learning are sort of interchangeable terms. Um, but I think the, the nomenclature of these things does get confusing. And I think it is worthy to just take a minute to just kind of separate out some of these terms and make sure that we're all on the same page. Um, I really loved the example, um, Dr. Christie, that you gave in class that always stuck with me as it relates to motor learning in the concept, the idea you, you said that it's a relatively permanent change. And you gave the example of you know, you can take a uh, water and you can freeze it and it becomes ice, right? And that's a change, but it's going to return back to water. Whereas an egg, if you boil an egg, it's going to stay a boiled egg. It's not going to turn back into a runny egg. And just, I think it's helpful to have those visual concepts to really help us understand what truly is motor learning and how does that differ from mm. motor performance? Because I think it gets muddy. 
Wow. Wow. I mean, I had no idea that he was a brilliant analogy creator like me. Maybe I should have taken a class with him instead of just drinking at <laughs> drinking at meetings in Jamaica. I mean, that's that's the evangelist I know. What's this runny egg water situation? You never told me that. Good God. <laughs> I just keep this for special people. <laughs> no, I, I think I think Alicia is uh, bringing up a good point. Is that um, there is a a lot of confusion of what modern learning is, even in, in people that they study modern learning. And, um, and, you know, skill acquisition or task acquisition to me is basically the process by which you're trying to make something permanent in your memory. So if you're, if you're getting on the bike and you're falling down and, um, you know, you, you cannot ride it and then you cannot stay on it for more than, one minute or something like this. That's task acquisition. I'm trying to figure out how to do this task. Once I figured it out and it's permanent, that's modern learning. Now I, I should be able to sit on a different bike and do it. You know, it will be easy to do it. So that's, that's the concept of transfer. So I use completely different effectors, different movements but they're, they're similar to what I practice, but now I can do them as well. So that goes back to the concept of having a memory of the task formulated in your brain that you can retrieve and use under different situations. Right. I Go ahead, Alicia. I was just going to, just to kind of really, mm. I don't want to, you know, go into too much depth in the terms, but, you know, when you learn to ride a bike, it's not black and white. You can get better at riding a bike, right? So sure. would you delineate motor learning from say like motor skill learning where you, you, you've learned how to ride the bike, it's permanent, you're not gonna forget how to lose the bike, but now you're able to execute this task more efficiently, more quickly, more accurately with practice. Is this all still what you would consider motor learning? Is it kind of a, um, is there a subset of motor learning that's really in that refinement process? So to me, that's that's mostly kind of like reinforcement learning. So okay. I know how to do the task now. Um, I figured out how to do the task. Now I'm going to optimize every single um, um, opportunity that I have or uh, chance that I have to make the, the task um, as good as, as I can. So I can make it faster, I can make it more precise, I, you know, and so on. So I think that's called reinforcement learning. The other thing, the other thing that's interesting is you can define motor learning in a subset of a task that is part of a larger thing. So I wanted us to bring us back to this idea that motor learning is not just something that adults do, that's in addition to everyday life. And that's often what people think. It's like, well, you don't have to ride a bike to live. You don't have to be able to surfboard or do these or, you know, learn how to write a particular way, like calligraphy or something to live. So people often think of motor learning as this thing in addition to everyday life. But we had to establish motor learning to do the things that we do now. Um, when we wean, I mean, you're born knowing how to swallow liquids because you've been swallowing them in utero. Thank God. <laughs> or evolution. I don't know who we're thinking because I don't want to get into that fight right now. But the point is, 
it makes sense that we learned how to deal with thin liquids in utero to deal with amniotic fluid. So when we came out, we weren't going, okay, so nutrition, how do we get that in us? We already knew how to do it. The only part we had to figure out was latching to a nipple and being able to intake that uh, thin liquid, but our body knew how to deal with that. That was still, that still requires a process. Fortunately, it should happen in a couple, two to three days. Shouldn't happen in two to three weeks because the baby's not going to make it if they don't know how to latch outside of modern medicine, right? So there are a lot of things that we have learned walking, using, you know, going to fine tune use of our fingers, the, the pincher or pincher grip, whatever they call it. All those things that they talk about as milestones. Once you learn that thing, that the process of motor learning had to happen. It just was appropriate for that age. It's no longer appropriate for you to be to be a grown up like, oh, crap, I forgot how to walk. And no, there's no other damage or anything. That would be weird. So um, it's important for us to talk about, I guess we call develop normal development and that motor learning is necessary to just get the basic functions that we think are everyday movements in regular life. I, sure. I, th I think mother learning happens throughout life. Um, either we have to sometimes relearn things uh, because our nervous system changes and, you know, you can have like any kind of disease or any kind of um, issue with your health, like a stroke, then you have to relearn how to walk or uh, reach for that coffee mug or w whatever. Um, but I think we, we learn all the time, you know, th think of a, of a person who's never seen a smartphone and now you give them a smartphone and they have to learn how to, to use that smartphone. That's, that's definitely modern learning. Um, so I don't think it's just restricted in just the developmental period, but it, it happens throughout life. So I think- Oh yeah, no, I wasn't saying it was restricted. Yeah. I was saying we've already done it. And a lot of times when people come into this field, they look at the studies and the studies incorporate adults doing something they've never done before. So they think motor learning is learning a skill like a bike or a golf, because that's the studies that are happening. But in order to get to the point where you can even stand up and not lose your balance or to just walk across the field on a bumpy terrain that's grass, you have to have experienced that before, even though the studies don't really study kids and how we got these basics in the first place. And the reason I think about that a lot is because I study swallowing and the pushback for me was always, don't we already do this reflexively in utero? Can you even learn anything in swallowing? Do you learn anything? And I often had to sort of arm myself with the experiences of just habituation, just development, so I could utilize it in arguments for rehabilitation, which is where you went with the ideas. You may have been doing something just fine. You know how to chew you know, uh, a, a carrot and you never had to think about it before, just like you knew how to walk around across a room. Then suddenly that ability has been interrupted and you need to relearn it, which is where we go from more of a habilitation to a rehabilitation phase. But like you said, motor learning should be happening through the lifespan and in and out of wellness and disease. Sure. So you, you touched on a couple of things and just at the get-go to kind of go on the same theme of defining our terms so we're all on the same page, you started to allude to this concept of like sensory motor adaptation. And so I'm curious where you would fit adaptation and, and you know, we've touched on motor control, like how do these concepts, neuroplasticity, I think sometimes these terms get used interchangeably when they shouldn't. 
Um, so maybe we can just kind of define what is sensory motor adaptation? Is it an aspect of motor learning? How is it different from neuroplasticity? How would we delineate these terms? Can we start so with just motor control? Because that's sort of like the broader yeah. umbrella. Evangelos, motor control yeah. in three, <clears throat> two, go. <laughs> what is motor control? Motor control is your ability to produce a coordinated movement with the least amount of error um, in a way. So you, you have a goal. And if you can produce that goal um, with the least amount of error, then you have motor control of that situation. Um, so it's it, it always, I mean, we have this discussion because the definition is not very clear across even people that they study motor control. Um, in my bias is that unless there is a, a goal, a target, and you look at your performance relative to that target, you cannot identify motor control. Hmm. Um, so, you know, I walk. Now, if you put me on a piece of, you know, wire and you tell me to, to walk from the ground to that wire, it's going to require a different kind of motor control, right? So I have a smaller target. So I have to be extreme. My balance has to be extremely, um, really good to, to be able to do that. Uh, and if you don't have it, then you don't have the motor control to walk on a, on a, on a string. Um, but I can walk on the ground, so I have the motor control for the ground. So it, it always depends on the target and how well you can perform relative to the target that you're given. To me, that's, that's kind of like what, what motor control is. When you say target, <clears throat> could you say that that's kind of synonymous with task? Because I yes. think in following, target isn't really the right word. Um, it's more of what, what's the swallowing task and what's the motor control needed for that task? Because it's going to be different uh, depending on what you're swallowing, what the consistency or the volume, like that's more of the task. Would you agree, Ianessa, that target is kind of more of a movement term? Target. So target is a word that makes sense when I put my science hat on. It's something I would put in a grant, which is why I easily made that transition into my head and it makes sense. But you're right, yeah. if we're talking about a clinician who's dealing with swallowing, they might say task, but it brought me to a question to see if what you're saying, Evangelos, allows me to pull things together. So you're a regular, well, mostly a regular human, right? And so you're walking across regular flat pavement and you've done this for X number of years, you have no problem with it. So this is, so the motor control is just doing the walking without with the least amount of error it's a coordinated move, movement to walk and the least amount of error means you're not stumbling on nothing you're able to put one foot in front of the other you can keep your balance etc yep whatever and then the motor uh, then you somebody says now walk on this wire now you have to there was a term that you said that i've already forgotten i have had enough wine to forget already on an empty stomach you said task task learning right because i want to say skill learning so now the idea of walking on the wire, you're going from motor control, which is just executing this thing that you know how to do, to having to learn how to do this new task, which you have not done before. So there's actually learning that can happen there. You can't learn anymore when the task keeps getting completed without error. And that would be the walking on the flat pavement. Suddenly motor learning is now necessary because there's something to learn that your body doesn't know 
because it's just not figured out the sensory motor integration to walk on this wire. Is that fair to pull all those terms together? Yeah, yeah. I, I kind of like how you brought the sensory motor integration uh, into learning and into motor control. And I, I agree with the way that you interpreted them. Uh, so <clears throat> sensory motor learning is, is part of the processes that they are going through when you have the task acquisition, right? So you, you do have these sensory motor processes, you know, you're getting feedback of how you did it. You know, like what we call error-based learning is basically sensory motor learning. I am doing a mistake, I see it, right? Or I feel it, and then I correct it on the next trial or on the next move that I have to do. And it's just, it's just a process that continues updating of this sensory information with execution. Sensory information, update, execution, you know, and you keep going on and that, that creates the process of task acquisition. And that's how you learn a task. Um, so you have to keep sorry, doing it. Alicia. Alicia, are you already screaming to say the thing mm. that we keep saying? Go, I can see it in your face. No, no, I just, I think this is such an important point because I think that sometimes we use the word learning incorrectly. And I, I think that we just need to take a moment to kind of hit it over the head just the just the idea like I, I love that you keep saying that um you keep talking about it as a process right and i think that it's so important to make the point to say that just because in performance is improving so you can have perturbations and just because performance is improving we don't know that learning is occurring Correct. and it really make the point that learning is the ability to maintain what you have learned, right? So in terms of a new situation, so you may adapt, you may adapt, but that doesn't mean that you've learned. So, but if you come back, you know, say the second day or the third day or whatever, after a period of time and you, and you go right back to the beginning, you haven't learned. Right. But I yep. think sometimes that, that, it gets, we say learning and we say this in swallowing, I think too, that just because somebody is improving doesn't mean that they're learning. And I think that that's such an important distinction to make when we're reading research articles and considering treatments for our patients and how the outcomes have been measured that we may not actually be promoting true rehabilitation. Because really, for rehabilitation, we want that performance to be maintained over over time, not just in response to the perturbation. Well, that depends, because some people consider rehabilitation to be a compensation that allows them to function in a world, even if it's not with the ability they had before. And some people say that rehabilitation is restored function, and really it's both. It depends so much on the population you're dealing with. So with ALS where they're just going to continue to decline, maintaining function is far superior to stroke where they start out really bad and maintaining that function doesn't indicate rehabilitation. So I think your point is valid, Alicia, in that you we need to be able to distinguish upfront what is the task that we want our patients to have? Meaning, is this a patient that is so severe that if we could just get them to have 10% 
more go through the upper esophageal sphincter or allow their larynx to close just 10% more for them that would be huge whereas for somebody else you expect a full recovery so you go from compensation expectations for the very severe person to restoring function and someone who has the prognosis and they encompass different things so just the ability to respond to an error might be something that the the very <laughs> severe person might be struggling with meaning they sure, feel they, that the they ability... feel the sensory error of the bolus and they're not responding to it and to just get them to cough would be a big deal for the first one whereas the other one you might want them to learn a new task right so they they can both be in there go ahead i agree but i think that i think in the context of our patients sometimes the goal is that they just respond adequately to a perturbation and that is huge but i wouldn't call that learning i would oh, i would no, say I that's agree. still an adequate rehab a, goal i say still an adequate rehab goal but it's implicit learning so learning it's, doesn't only so motor learning and skill acquisition they are different things than implicit learning which is more adaptation in terms of the idea it's not long term but just error-based learning maybe they shouldn't have put learning on there but oh. you know, it's adaptation right. Right. So yeah, it is adaptation. The the umbrella of motor learning can include taking errors to permanently change a behavior. But the early part of that, if you do a study that's only five days, maybe you haven't studied long enough to know that they're actually right. they have learned it. So exactly. part, my issue with motor learning is the methods that are necessary to know if it's long term are inhibited by the logistics of doing science, right? So we yeah. might be capturing the beginning of the learning process that actually stays forever. We just don't know because we didn't study them for five years, right? But we can't say that that process of understanding the early parts of how to even respond to an error couldn't eventually lead to motor learning. Does that make sense? I'm not saying yes. it's learning on day one. I'm saying this maybe is where that's- I, learning just, it, it gets so oh, used and abused. It gets so used and abused that I think sometimes we're talking about adaptation which when we see adaptation within a patient, we're like, yes, this is great. But it's different. Adaptation is different than learning. And I think that, yeah, I, and I'm sure there's different there's different camps. I'm sure that call it different things. But I think for the purpose of our patients, we have to make that distinction. And you can call it whatever you want to call it. But like take the paper um, where the, the, the paper that you did, Ianessa, where you did e-STEM, right? And we saw that patients adapted to that e-STEM in different ways. They overcame the effects of that perturbation in different ways. Some increased their hyoid range of motion. Some increased their duration of laryngeal of vestibule closure. They adapted in different ways. What we didn't do in that study, or what you didn't do in that study, I'm just going to insert myself into that, uh, <laughs> is, is test, you know, a week later. We right? did that in a different study, all, though. In a different study, but in that particular study, it was a, it was about the adaptation. Sure. So the point. So I just want to make sure everybody's following, which is when you put electrical stimulation on the anterior neck, you are targeting the muscles that pull the hyoid and larynx down. In healthy people and patients, they should respond over at least 10 swallows and gradually, implicitly increase the peak hyolaryngeal elevation just because they recognize something's wrong. They don't know. Half the people who came into the lab, I usually try to get this point across by saying they're lay people and they don't even know what a larynx is and they still say things like larynx. So it's not like they're like, oh, my laryngeal vestibule was so-and-so. They don't know what's in their neck yet. 
they consistently show that when you perturb them, they keep trying to overcome it because there's an error they're feeling with their swallow. And your question, Alicia, which is a good one, is, is that learning? Well, it's definitely error-based call it error-based learning at Hopkins. And now I feel like I can't even say that word here because you guys are giving me the Hawkeyes. But <laughs> Im but implicit learning is what they call it there. And you guys can tell me if I shouldn't say that. But adaptation is what they're doing. They're learning to adapt in a short term to the error over several swallows. In a different study, we had them come back two weeks later. And the question is, when they started, st when they started swallowing with the e-stim, did they allow the perturbation to impact them as much as two weeks ago. And if you continue that study over several years, do you get to the point where you start to change your swallow permanently without any any outside activity? They just permanently swallow differently. Well, we didn't do that study. And there are obviously big ethical reasons why we can't go around permanently changing normal swallows because I can't imagine they get better. <laughs> um, but that question is important for patients where the get where a permanent change should be better. Because one thing that we always have to remember is motor learning means you've learned something. It doesn't mean it's improved. You could train maladaptive behaviors in people for whom you're not paying attention to the direction of their change. I, I, I have a kind of different kind of analogy that you may like in this. Um, She'll tell you if she, if, if she doesn't like it. Yeah, maybe she won't. I don't know. <laughs> Imagine you're practicing, you know, with a football team. You know, you're in the field and you're practicing and you have wait, two wait, methods. Wait, wait, wait. Which football are you talking, talking about? American football? Are we talking soccer? It doesn't matter. Any, any, either one. You know, for me, football is soccer. So, <laughs> so you're practicing, you know, a skill in football. Um, and you're having two methods, an old method and a new method. So while you're practicing, you know, with your second team or whatever you, you, you have during the, in the practice field, you really perform really, really well with the new method. Okay. But during game time, if you try both of them, you perform so much better with the old method. Which one performed the best learning? Well, the, the old, old method. method. Exactly. Well, because the you old can method do it under all conditions. Learning. So how you perform during practice is not important. It's, it's what you remember when it's game time. That's, that's what modern learning is for me. So basically, it's one of those things where you see the Olympics and you see these people who say she can do this in practice, this particular series of flips <laughs> and landings, but she's never stuck it in a competition. And that's because all the stresses of the circumstance impact your body's ability to perform what you were be able, able to perform before. Would you say then that a Simone Biles could never stick a landing in, in front of everybody as consistently as she does in practice in a closed environment that she hasn't learned it and she's still in her task acquisition mode? Um, she hasn't learned it as well as somebody else who can perform it, yes. Because once once learning is there uh, and it's perfect, it's, it's the retrieval of a memory, a modern memory and an execution. So you don't even have to think about it. So it's it's immaterial of what the environment you know around you uh, is doing. So the the better the better you know this, the less influence you will have from the environment or any kind of perturbation that is going to come from the outside world. You know, I say that to my students all the time when they claim they knew something except for the test, 
And I'm like, what's your na- <laughs> you know what I always say? I always say, what's your name? And they, they're like, I'll just throw a name out there, Nicole. And I'm like, how come, how come you know your name, Nicole? How come, what's that? Well, because it's my name. I know it well. I'm like, okay, so then you don't know X phenomenon, like the muscles or whatever it was I was teaching, as well as your name. You need to know it like your name so that whole idea of being tested is not going to get you all confused. Yeah. So, you know, relating this to swallowing, you know, Evangelist, you've said that you, really the gold standard in motor learning is to test a transfer task, right? Like yep. you come back a period of time later and you test them, maybe not on the exact same thing that they practice with, but something similar, like the soccer example or a football example is a good one where, you know, a practice situation is quite different than a game time situation. And in swallowing, how would we relate that? So when we're doing therapy with a patient and that's sort of our practice sessions, would you say the transfer task isn't that you can keep doing it in therapy, but can you translate that to just a normal eating situation, mealtime when you're with family and friends, like it's, you're still doing the same task, you're still swallowing the same things, but it's the different environment and the different context that makes it more of a transfer task. Cause that's really the goal, right? Is to generalize what we do in therapy to a normal, real life contextual situation. That's so right. are you asking so you, him because you really want to know his answer or do you want to know the answer? No, I just, I, <laughs> I think, because I think sometimes it gets confusing when we talk about I was about joking, Alicia. Tasks. I was just trying to, it I has was, to be, she's trying to answer it. I was trying to stick <laughs> it to him. I know, I know what you're asking. I was just trying to give him shit. I was trying to get, get him nervous to be wrong about the swallowing answer nervous. to give him his in context, out of context soccer example. Go. No, and then, then I'll tell you the real answer. <laughs> so... One more term that I want to define before we move on. Wait, do you want him to I, answer the question? He did answer the question. He said, yeah. Yeah. That's all I wanted. I did. I said, yeah. <laughs> all right. Go ahead and define your well, term, then I'll jump in. Okay. So I feel that the term neuroplasticity is kind of a buzzword that gets used a lot. And I want to delineate between what is neuroplasticity and what is motor learning. And I'm going to tell you my understanding of it. And you tell me if this is wrong. And I, and I say this, I'm taking, I'm jumping in on this because it's interesting in my postdoc, everybody always says I study neuroplasticity. And in my postdoc, I have never heard the term motor learning be used within my, in my postdoc. So I find it an interesting, I find it interesting who uses these terms and who doesn't. And if there is a definition, my understanding is when we talk about neuroplasticity, we're talking about the brain's ability to reorganize synaptic connections. What's actually happening in the brain that is in response to learning or an experience. I think sometimes neuroplasticity, in my opinion, gets used as motor learning. But truly, neuroplasticity can happen without motor learning. Is that true? Uh, but I not think, vice versa. I think neuroplasticity I isn't true. just about movements, though. The thing with neuroplasticity to me is there are fields that don't do anything related to movement and can detect. Right. So to me, neuroplasticity is a larger umbrella. And one exemplification or manifestation is motor learning for people who study movements and it's real in that form, but there could be other systems that are plastic where synaptic changes happen permanently and manifest in a different output that 
is not movement. So I think neuroplast, I think motor learning is an example of neuroplasticity, but just the output that we're, we care about, which are movements. I, sure, I, I totally agree um, with Yanessa. Um, I mean, you can, you can think of, uh, um, if you close your eyes right now, you can see a picture of your mom. You can imagine your mom. Uh, but before you were born, you didn't have that image. So once you, you had that image, your neuroplast you had neuroplasticity occurring in your brain and you had a new image that formulated and remained with you forever. Um, it's the same thing. I can show you a picture of somebody and I can tell you, you know, this person, you know, I don't know, for God's sake, I mean, he killed this and this person that you knew. You, you will never forget that person. Immediately, there's going to be neuroplasticity that is completely disassociating with motor learning. It has nothing to do with motor learning, but it has to do with some cognitive processes um, that, that are formulated. So yeah, I agree that, with Yanessa's uh, definition. Wow. Can you, can, wait, can you say that one more time? You said you completely agree with me. <laughs> I just, there, I don't want anyone uh, to not hear that. Say that one more time, please. Yeah, I t completely agree with you on this specific situation. And the, oh, I like the context. We're talking, in neuroplasticity, you're talking more about structural changes within the brain, right? Not necessarily. Like, I mean, it, I mean, you, the assumption is that if you went and checked that there would be actual changes, but sometimes neuroplasticity, so I'm differentiating what we think is happening versus what science has actually able, mm. been able to show. So if you smell, if you, a uh, perfume happens and you immediately think of your grandmother from when you were five, I don't know that there's a study where they're going to go in and check your brain to see. Well, just because, I mean, changes. just because they can study it or not study it. I don't think that that's the point. I think the point is you're making the assumption that for that to have happened, for that memory to have occurred, there had to have been neuroplasticity. Even if we see the actual dendrites sprouting, that's the assumption. So like with motor learning, the assumption is that even if we can't do it or we can do it, that it should be something that is measurable. If in an ideal world, world, if we had every single tool available for motor learning to occur, there had to have been neuroplastic changes in the brain for that learning to be permanent. Yeah, it's can, just can our something? measurement tools haven't caught up with what our theory sure. is yet. Sure. Neuroplasticity is not just in the brain. I, I want to say this. So it, can be at the, it can be at the periphery, exactly. So, so imagine somebody who is doing weightlifting and now the, their tendon gets stiffer or stronger. Uh, now they, they don't need to activate the muscle as much because their tendon got stiffer. So if they, if they want to do something very precise, they will use less activity in the muscle because they can exert the rest of the force from the tendon being thicker. So peripheral changes and associated neural changes that occur can also be neuroplasticity. So but it doesn't have to be- But you're still saying the same thing Alicia said the though. There has to be- yeah, yeah. There has to yeah. be some sensation going to the central nervous system say, oh, this tendon is really stiff, program this kind of motor activity. So I hear what you're saying. The originating factor might not be in the brain necessarily. In general, right. I would argue most of the things are external. I know that there can be intrinsic things like, I don't know, puberty and sexual desire or something like that, because your 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 hormones are just, <laughs> your hormones are just doing what they're doing when you're a teenager, right? But 
most of the things that like smells, etc., you had to actually intake that information. Your brain had to process it. And then you had this response of some sort, even if it's just a gag and you're throwing up or something. But I, sure. I feel like we're getting away from the thing that Alicia asked that I really want to answer that I think is important that somehow evangelist got away with by saying, yes, I just feel like that's bullshit. <laughs> so here we go. Your question was a great one, which is what is the thing that we're modulating and swallowing? And I always say that the hallmark of swallowing Uh, The hallmark of a disordered swallow is the inability to swallow a wide range of bolus types without significant aspiration or residue. Alicia's giving me the na 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 na. Mom's lecturing me. I literally just mouthed exactly what you said. Like, if you would have muted, if you would have muted and cut out, I just would have kept going with the sentence. Like, that's what I was mouthing. (laughs) So, given that, given, it's almost like saying the hallmark of regular walking is that if the only place you could ever walk was on extremely flat, perfectly flat marble, but you couldn't walk on grass, you couldn't walk on any pebbles. So, people would be like, this is a disorder, right? So, the same thing with swallowing. Of course, swallowing means that we have inherent differences in bolus principles. And what do we do? Before the bolus gets to our mouth, we've already decided how we're going to manage it. Is it a meatball? Do is my plan to break it down? Or is it a bunch of, you know, small pieces that my plan is to make it cohesive? And what you keep doing is updating the system to say, before I even see it, I already know what I'm going to do to manipulate this bolus. So when I swallow, it's safe enough to throw down the hatch, right? Otherwise, I'm going to choke and die. It's not so much about aspiration. It's about, am I going to obstruct my pharynx with this big honking thing, right? Okay, so to me, the the answer to that question that rehab specialists, especially in swallowing, should be thinking about is, are we able to have this task vary? Meaning, right now this person can't handle thin liquids. They're way too fast and they don't even respond to it quickly. They can handle thin honey, but anything gets too thick and then their physiology doesn't respond properly. It's your job to figure out, is it sensory? Is it motor? Is it both of them? So you know how and when to gradually make the boluses thinner to challenge them over time, to figure out what they do with the error of a bolus going into the airway. It's basically the same thing that Alicia and I have been preaching for three years now, which is if you don't give people an opportunity to practice and fuck up and know what to do with the error, they'll never know what to do. And in fact, some people at UF that I've learned from have suggested and even Karen's work, Karen um, Hecklin's work in this area, Karen Wheeler's work in this area, has specifically shown that it is possible, like in Parkinson's disease, for someone to sense that something went down the wrong way, but not do the appropriate task. Meaning, if you say, gosh, did you notice that something is in your airway? They'll be like, yep, I think that went the wrong way. Why didn't you cough? The error the sensory error is supposed to elicit a cough, but they didn't necessarily elicit a cough, right? And the question is, have they habituated to the sensation of feeling the bolus in the airway so much that their system has said, we can't keep coughing. But mm-hmm. some people don't know what to do with the error. Some people do know what to do with the error. And that's what our job is to figure out based on these various circumstances that we call swallowing. Sure. Can I, can I say something? Can I intervene? I, I, I don't know much about the rehabilitation of uh, swallowing, but I, I assume when you guys uh, rehab somebody, you use variability of practice. And this is, this is why um, practice is so important. And it's not modern learning, but you know what variability of practice is, is, is that if you want somebody to go out and eat any, any kind of meal, you want to practice them with different bolus. 
This is what we're saying, but they never yep. do. Evangelos, you should be a speech pathologist. But this is what happens, Evangelos. Let me tell you what happens. This is going to blow your mind. Two things are going to blow your mind. When speech pathologists see a patient and they're impaired, often what's dogma in our field is that they say, this is what you're good at. This consistency and volume, you're good at swallowing 15 mLs of thin liquid and you're good at swallowing mashed potatoes. So I'm going to tell you, you can only take sips of 15 milliliters of thin liquid and you can only eat foods that are in the consistency of mashed potatoes. They're literally taking away the variability of practice and saying, this is what's safest for that patient. It's kind of like if a physical therapist said, well, you're good at walking on completely flat surfaces. So you're only allowed to walk in a gym. You you can't walk on pavement or grass. Don't ever do it. It's just not safe. Like that's, that's what's happening. And that's sort of, I would say if I could summarize this podcast that we've done for three years now, it would be promoting people, clinicians, to allow patients to have variability of practice. I think that would be, wouldn't you say, you know, so that's like our overriding theme of let them, eat have, cake. Let them have errors. You have to let them fail. Right. So they learn how to overcome that failure. The system, I think we don't give them enough credit that it knows how to adapt in a way that sometimes we have to take their, our hands off the patient and let the system adapt. But Alicia, the situation is not that they don't get the concept. I mean, people recognize many people who are speech pathologists are expert, you know, golfers or they are they do something in their world. Maybe they put on maybe they're great at, at you know, doing uh, hair. I don't know what it is. There's something where they've had to make mistakes to figure out the best way to do it. So they get the concept. And in fact, I will see many people complain that they took their mom to PT and they're not advancing them properly. She didn't get to practice on stairs. How is she ever going to do stairs? And like, you literally don't let your patient eat, drink thin liquids. And they're like, well, I don't want them to aspirate. It's like, ah, the whole point is that there is a huge conflict between what we know makes sense versus what we allow our patients to do. And it's just like the moms who are like, helicopter moms who don't let their kids do anything because they're afraid that they might die or cry. And of course, then you have these sheltered children who actually don't have variability. They don't have the capacity, which I want to bring to your um, to your lab evangelist, which is what you study, which is aging and variability. And the idea is that as we get older, certain tasks become more variable and variability has a place in motor learning and control. And having variability means you have some other thing you can pull from to get through the task properly. We don't do things exactly the same way for a reason, but that's what speech pathologists seem to be training people to do. Yeah, I, I think I think we have to distinguish, you know, very clearly what's variability of practice and what's variability of performance. So, so if if I am if I'm intending to do the same thing over and over and over, let's say I have to produce 50 newtons of force, um, and I I cannot do it, that that's a problem, but if I want to practice and I want to do 25 newtons of force, 75, you know, around that 50 newtons of force, that's variability of practice. So I'm intentionally training at environments outside of the one that I'm trying to get good at. So if perturbations occur during the game time, and I put it in a quotation, uh, you, you are able to, to perform. Same thing with the, you know, different bonuses or different food that, you know, you may eat. If, if it comes in and it's completely different from your expectation, but it's similar f- with what you practice, um, you will be able to adapt to that food much better than if you've never seen anything like this. 
Yeah. So, so can I can I make sure I understand something you're saying? Because yeah. I want to make sure everybody hears this. Variability of practice basically means practicing in various circumstances or conditions. Correct. And whereas variability of performance suggests that, and I'll take the example that I learned among my motor learning people, which is if you repeat the same task 15 to 20 times and you actually measure the muscle fibers or the muscle groups, they don't do everything exactly the same way. You vary which muscle fibers you use, how much, when, the timing, all these things. That's right. Because that is a normal process that allows us to be, to have, to deal with variability of practice later on, right? The fact that you kind of know how to deal with, how to pull from different, I guess, I guess I, I like to think about as somebody who's had a, a, a life experience that's more diverse and they're more uh, hardy, if you will. Um, they haven't had the same experience their whole life. So when things change and they go from the country to the city, maybe they're a little bit more adaptable in that situation than somebody who's only experienced one thing their whole life. Yeah. Well, and wouldn't you say that uh, just by the nature of what we do, when we overemphasize compensation and compensating, that you're inherently kind of taking away that variability of, of, of practice, right? So by saying, well, when you do this head turn or when you put your chin down or when you do a maneuver, you're successful. And, and we consider that, oh, that's great. You know, oh my gosh, like they're not aspirating anymore. And that's great in the short term. But if truly our goal is to rehab a patient to not have to do those compensations, we have to allow error to come in. Yep. Otherwise, the system doesn't know how to adapt. It doesn't know what's wrong. Also, it's Alicia, wouldn't you, wouldn't you go further and say that training someone to only ever swallow with their chin tucked could be reinforcing motor learning and perhaps maladaptive behaviors that when they ever three years later try to swallow with their chin up that that no longer feels normal <laughs> like we don't know what we're training because the studies have not actually tested that i'll go to this weird thing and then i swear we're going to go to the ankle and tongue studies <laughs> have you guys heard that marilyn monroe always had heels on so much that her tendons shortened and she had to have specialized house slippers that were heels because it was so uncomfortable for her to actually walk flat. Oh, that's no. terrible. <laughs> so somebody fact checked that shit because I threw it out there like I knew it was real. But that's what I heard. I was like, wow, that she was in heels so much that she yeah. the only way to be comfortable at home, she couldn't walk flat. She had to have bedroom slippers that had a wedge in them. But the idea is you can train maladaptive behaviors that start, as you said, evangelist in the periphery that your nervous system then learns to adapt around and it can be bad yeah yeah absolutely so so now let's move to our because i feel like we have five zillion things to say but i really want to talk about the fact that evangelist and i were able to conduct studies together even though he stuck uh, he studies the ankle and i do not <laughs> so what are we were trying to figure out how do we do a study that tests the idea that when you have uploaded, I guess you can say some kind of goal-oriented task program, it doesn't really matter what end organ you end up doing it with. Meaning, you can take, think of the letter T, and you can draw it with your fingers, you can draw it with your, if you had sand, you can draw it in the sand with your toes, you could draw it with your nose, you could draw it with your fingers, you could draw it with your tongue, although that would be gross. You can draw it with your knee. The point is, it's just a matter of executing, making these two lines in the sand. And we did something similar with 
ankle and tongue, meaning if you learn something first with the ankle, and then you come back some days later and you need to train that same behavior with your tongue, are you better because you've trained with a different system on a similar task? And the reverse was true, meaning people who train first with the tongue, does that help them with ankle behavior? And part of what we were after is a lot of patients are in OTPT and SLP, meaning they have problems across many systems. And is it possible to train some general concepts that allow people to sort of download from, regardless of if there's their arm, their tongue, or their leg, in terms of learning something general, given my T example might be a good example of that. Evangelist, what did we find? Do you remember? Find that it doesn't, I kind of remember. I mean, it probably doesn't matter how you you practice. You can practice with the tongue or you can practice with, with the ankle, uh, but the information is is used and is saved in the brain somewhere. Uh, and then you can retrieve it to produce the same task with a different effector, either the mouth or the ankle. So it's beneficial to, to have any sort of practice independent of the effector that you're using. So in, in practical way to think about this is that if I practice a specific task with my, with my leg, uh, I can use it I can use that information, I can use that knowledge that I gain to uh, better control my mouth uh, for the same task, at least. This does not mean that you can do swallowing therapy by having people do ankle dorsiflexion tasks and then bill that you're doing swallowing. No, specific, specific aspects of swallowing may be helped. It doesn't, I mean, swallowing is way more complex than than just some ankle dorsiflexion that you, you do. I mean, we, we know that. Uh, but there are specific parts of swallowing that will be better uh, in response to that. Right. So do what you we found, think... what, I was just going to expand on something. What we found is that there are tasks where, like, you have to push down, on, like, on a driving and push down on the gas pedal. And when you learn to do that, what we did is we then had people on day two who had already learned to push down on a gas pedal to a certain amount of pressure over several, several trials, do the same thing, but with an IOP bulb in their mouth. So now they're pushing up on a bulb and seeing the same tracing that is created with pressure um, by delivering a certain amount of pressure. And when people had trained with a tongue first, uh, sorry, with the angle first by pushing on this pedal and seeing a tracing that represented the amount of pressure that they were producing, they then figured out the tongue better. The reverse was not true, and that's because we think it takes more time to figure out how to interact with an IOP than how to get your foot to interact with a pedal because a lot of people have experience with driving and they recognize visual representations of their feet by seeing the accelerate the accelerometer move or, or representing speeding. But most people take a while to figure out how moving their tongue has some kind of visual representation of their, what they're doing. But the point is, one system, once it's uploaded to the brain, has the capacity to train another system. Yeah. The, 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 the cool thing about these two systems is that one is controlled by the corticospinal um, system and the other one is corticobalpar. So they're, they're actually, they actually belong into two different systems. So whatever we saved must have been saved in a, in a location where they both have access to. Except I would argue 
the 12th cranial nerve is not terribly different from the first cervical nerve, nerve when you, a spinal nerve, when you think about cervical spinal nerve. And when you think about it, many mammals use their tongue the same way we use our hands because it's a hydrostat. If you think of even trunks or uh, uh, lizards who actually use their tongue to grab food. So a lot of people in the um, arm and hand world have said that they kind of think of the tongue as basically a spinal nerve because it's the last of the cranial nerves and it has so such so much volitional capacity a lot of people who can't move use their tongue to to to, to move a mouse around to move their um, wheelchair around it has it has both reflexive components for swallowing but the front of the tongue has a really good amount of volitional components that can get it is almost it's more precise in terms of sensory you can feel a uh, plaque on the back of your teeth with your tongue, but you can't feel it with your finger. So do you, do you think this is kind of a silly question, but a serious one in talking about motor skill, motor learning, do you think that a highly trained ballerina would be better at swallowing therapy? I'm going to tell you why I think the answer is yes, because actually somebody came to me after a study I described with motor learning and they said, that if you take a table and you have various people take both index fingers, point them, and one finger is going to the top of the table, the other finger is going under the table, and you have to try to get your two fingers to touch as closely as possible, dancers tend to be better at getting their fingers to be, all, their, the tip of their index fingers to be close to each other at the top and bottom of the table than other people do. So I suspect that people's ability to manipulate their um, their bodies might be better among people who just have better sensory motor integration of their system. I suspect people who are highly awkward and arrhythmic, both in dancing and walking and speaking, would probably be less likely than people who are very, um, who can articulate very well and are just more precise in their movements. And I think ballerina dancers are like the epitome of that kind of precision. That would be my assumption. Um, okay, one last question. Maybe we have one. So <clears throat> when it comes to deficits in motor learning, so in looking at uh, diseased populations, what are, and try to be specific, certain types of etiologies or diseases that would red, give you a red flag for somebody who may not be as good of a candidate for rehabilitation because they have a deficit in their ability to um, truly make a permanent change in the in the way that we have defined motor learning. Maybe. Yeah. Is that question to me or to Yanessa? To, to anybody. I mean, I guess I would say like the more I, common disease process, I would say, yeah. are people that have cerebellar infarcts yeah. or cerebellar disease. That that's kind of a classic deficit in motor learning. But I'm curious about maybe specific types of strokes yeah. that would fall in that same category, or any other diseases in particular. So, so I do have a hypothesis about this, and I've been testing it, and um, we do we do have some evidence um, for it. So, you know th this. The practice time, this error-based learning time that we, we talked about, I think it's very important in terms of motor learning, your, your ability to transfer, your, your ability to perform at game time. Um, so during the practice time, during rehabilitation, for example, 
um, you perceive the error, which is so important. Let's say you have the ability to perceive the error, but now you don't have the ability to correct it, to perform a voluntary contraction, a voluntary movement to correct that error. So you intend to do something, but you do something else. So this, this inability to perform voluntary output the, as precise as you want, it's detrimental to your ability to learn because you, you perceive something, you want to correct it, but you cannot. So the next time you perceive something else and you want to correct it and, and you, perform, you perform something else. So this connection between error and correction does not occur as strongly as to somebody who has uh, this control process uh, during practice. So your ability to perform with accuracy and the least amount of variability during practice is essential for modern learning. I really do believe so. So this is, this is where I, I will stand with that one. Well, I, go ahead. I have one more question. <laughs> because I know you do a lot of um, research on aging and variability, and I think it's really fascinating. In swallowing, we know that as humans age, they become more variable in their ability to swallow. So we call it presbyphasia, right? They kind of, in similar to other motor tasks, it yeah. gets worse. And I think that there's an overemphasis on explaining presbyphasia as a decline in the in actual muscle physiology. And I'm curious if you could talk just a little bit about how motor control changes with age, because I think in swallowing, because it's such a ballistic task that motor control is um, so important, but I think it's over overlooked. Yeah as we look at swallowing more in, as a strength-based task, which is kind of crazy, the more that we've been having this conversation, it just becomes more and more apparent to me. But anyways, just talk a little bit about what happens during um, healthy, norm normal aging with motor control. Can I, can I protect her for a second from your ballistic response, which is I once said to <laughs> Evangelos that, because the second R1 I had was this whole idea that swallowing is so fast that the plan is a feed forward one. Meaning oh before before the movements have begun, you've <laughs> already made a plan for the task. You cannot easily in a healthy situation update your your the, the physiology of a swallow mid-swallow, right? So it's not a it's not a situation where you're doing it on on online before when you have the bolus in your mouth, a strawberry that you've chewed up, you've already planned a lot well your brainstem has been involved in how this is going to be executed differently than maybe a saliva swallow because it's too risky to figure it out while the while the bolus is going down i had the nerve to say ballistic and guess who went ballistic evangelos is like in our world i would do the accent but i'm already going to be cancel culture if we're talking about ballerinas so i won't do your accent for fear that they think i'm english is a second la language learner ball busters but here we go Hey, Canuck, um, don't be, don't be silly. <laughs> <laughs> See, he, he came out, he came for me. Um, don't come for me unless I send for you, Evangelos. But basically... You speed forward control and now I need a drink. <laughs> exactly. And so the idea is that in his world, ballistic means on the order of a few, like 50 milliseconds, whereas a swallow is a second. And they're like, that can't be ballistic. That's true. So I, we, we, we think of ballistic I like as where this is going, about 150 so. milliseconds. 
you don't you don't have enough to perceive sensory feedback and change the the voluntary command that you executed. So the, the, your ability to change something it, it will have to be on the next trial, not not within the same trials. You you cannot make corrections. It's like That's throwing not, a ball, right? So if you're fast pitching, you can only figure out if you fucked up once you see where the ball ended, and then you fix it on the next one. You can't fix it while you're throwing it because it's a ballistic task. Right. But but still, I I think the <laughs> I, 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 I think the question can remain. Um, what, what I forget what the name is in um, in speech pathology, but like what you called it, but. In neurology, it's called dysmetria. So they, they make errors. Um, and, and usually that comes from two things. One is either discoordination, okay, of the synergistic or antagonistic muscles that you have to produce the, the given task, or from tremor. And usually it's some kind of pathology in the network that connects the cerebellum to the thalamus to the cortex that gets impaired with aging or with disease that causes any one of these two problems. So this is how we think of, you know, older people basically making more variability. And this is where we think that um, control of the motor units basically that control the muscle and then movement um, occurs. So we don't think it's primarily peripheral changes. We don't think it's, it's primarily strength changes or anything like this, but rather an inability to coordinate muscles um, or because of tremor. So I'm just so answering your question. So at the level of the motor unit is where he's saying. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, everything has to go through the motor unit. There, there is nothing that doesn't go through the motor unit except. Okay. Go ahead and define sweating. motor unit because I'm <laughs> going to assume many people don't know what that is. So, so motor unit is the um, alpha motor neuron in the spinal cord, its axon, and all the fibers that it innervates in a muscle. Um, and, and in our case, it's going to be the brainstem. What's that? Yeah, in your case, it will be in the brainstem. That's correct. So um, you can you can innervate anywhere from two to three fibers, all the way to hundreds of fibers, depending on on the muscle and depending on the location. So motor units vary in size, uh, both in the cell, you know, that's within the spinal cord, or the number of fibers that they innervate. Usually they go together. You know, the bigger the cell, the more fibers that it innervates. And that's because generally your quads don't need as much fine-tuned function as your fingers and your tongue, isn't it? I've, and tell me, I don't know how much you know about the digits in the tongue, but my understanding mm -hmm. is that when you want fine-tuned movements, you tend to have more motor units because you need to be able to control a small amount of muscle fibers to do intricate tasks as opposed to just taking a step or jumping. That's right. I mean, if you, if you have smaller motor units and more, um, but smaller motor units uh, with, with few fibers, one or two or three fibers, uh, the increments in force that you're going to be making, they're going to be smaller. And every single time that we produce a force or any kind of task, we go into increments in force. And if these steps are smaller, the finer the movement is going to be, the more precise, the more controlled the movement is going to be. So in the case of the, of the quad, we do have small motor units, but we have very few. And then you will go into a bigger one and a bigger one and a bigger one. So the, the steps are gonna be much bigger. So the, the resolution, the precision that you have 
in producing the force is going to be less. So do you guys, this is a weird question. I don't even know if you can hang with me anymore because I'm in like <laughs> space mode. Do you guys think that the things, that, when you said that, I thought, holy shit, everything in our world is designed around, this is going to sound obvious and dumb, around what a human can do. Meaning, buttons are small and they're for fingers. There are no foot buttons because there's no precision there. They're called pedals. Exactly. <laughs> they're pedals. So basically, our motor units have predetermined our environment, meaning from smartphones to remote controls to little knobs in our car, therefore our fingers and the smaller because our motor units have told these engineers, motherfuckers, we can't press that big ass button with our foot, but the pedals and all, they the, literally we don't drive with our hands in terms of gas and brakes because we need fine tuned stuff up here. Cars would be engineered completely differently if we had fine tuned toes and big club stomping hands. There would be pedals up top and we'd be steering our cars and changing our radio stations with our toes. But but I've always wondered, I'm, I've always been kind of surprised, this may be a dumb thing, but the steering wheel, like why, why we don't drive, why we even have pedals? Why wouldn't we drive like it's a remote control, like a, like a video game? Like a game. video game. <laughs> like a so break. Some, some, some companies have incorporated that in, in cars and they experimentally using it. Um, I think it's cultural as well, but they, they have, have a, they have a joy, no no they have a joystick, so right where your gears are, they have a joystick and then you can move it left and right, forward and backward basically, and and you can control the car that way. Um, but the problem is Ford already put in the infrastructure to do it one way. The amount of money and learning that yeah. would be required is not worth it. Like I'm being, I feel like Mark Cuban on Shark Tank right now, where he goes, the cost to train the at the public is so much to get them to know what your product is. Everybody's thinking about driving one way. Do you know how many industries you have to like change to be able to do joystick driving? <laughs> Yanis, so can I say why. something else? Maybe it's better, but we're not going to do it because the system's built around what Ford created. Yeah. Which is you, Flintstones, you, like running with your feet, and like using your hands. You, you preface this that we, we, we wouldn't like to hang around with you more. But I, I think I would like to hang around with you even more now that you, you've given that example that, you know, the whole universe, or not the universe, but at least the whole world is basically a reflection of the modern units. I'm going to use it in my class. You should, uh, because yeah, I'm yeah. using the ice in the boiled egg in any place I can. So, so, so far I've been going in and I've been saying, you know, name one activity that doesn't involve a modern unit that is really important. And we, we're influencing our world without a modern unit. And the only thing that we can do is sweating. Give me smelling. one thing. Smelling. Smelling? We're not influencing our world. We're just of we're getting. We are. In... are you kidding no. me? Have you walked in the bathroom after after someone's dropped a bomb? Yeah, and what do you Don't do? Don't you hold in your farts what, when what people do you do? are around? What do you do? You hold in your farts because you don't want somebody to smell be, it. Okay, so so you you do that, but you control it with mother units. No, no, no. I'm saying the idea of smell. The fact that somebody else is going to smell it who doesn't need motor units influences your behavior because you don't want them to think you're the guy who like blows out silent but deadlies. Your your behavior, holding or whatever you're doing, it's in reflection of the motor units. The so you're saying the actual behavior, yeah. not the... Okay, well, that's a different question. Don't be changing it halfway <laughs> through to be, to win. I see you. I am not. I like it. <laughs> anyway... Evangelist, it was so great to have you. I'm glad you allowed us to have fun 
through this conversation because you know it could be very dry this whole motor learning conversation which is why i thought we need to make sure to ask you um is there or do you have any dying last dying words that you want people to know about the torture you've endured by interacting with alicia and i or do you have something nice to say yeah i go do with, have something, go with something nice novel <laughs> be nice <laughs> i was really worried about how this would go but it just went <laughs> much much better than i expected and it was it was a lot of fun being with you guys even on zoom i mean oh, i I, I always enjoy you you know face there's so much more so many more topics to cover i feel like we just scratched the surface yeah but we end every podcast with that. We say there's going to be a part two and then we never get around to it. So We always say there's going to be a part two. <laughs> I'll be happy to come back for part two. Not the, not the number two that Yanessa was talking about a few minutes ago. <laughs> no, but... <laughs> that's a number zero. And number one is P. Hey, hey, foreigner, foreigner. <laughs> number one is P. Number yeah. two is poop. So I know. I would say a, I'd say the gas, the solid, liquid, and gas. I would say a gas is a zero. I'm just saying. Okay. Okay. Hey, guys, please don't cancel culture me. <laughs> I don't know what there is to cancel. We don't get paid for this or anything. I know. So. <laughs> well, they can, they can walk with their feet and not listen. We could actually have a podcast that has like five listens. I would love if there was a movement to cancel us. I feel like we would get 100,000 more listeners. <laughs>